This recording is a production of Faith Builders. This presentation was recorded at REACH 2013, a conservative Anabaptist ministry convention hosted by Faith Builders on March 14 and 15, 2013. One of the things I've been really curious about before leading this workshop was, well, who's going to be here? Who is it that's actually interested in the will of God? And looking over the numbers a little bit, I have the inside story and registration working at Faith Builders. There's a lot of variety, and, and that's what I see. There's, there's young people, there's, there's older folks. And the will of God is apparently something that interests people of all ages and of different stripes. And I think that's the way it has to be. So maybe you're here to, to learn a little bit about uh, what it is that you're, the direction of your life could take. Maybe you just want to learn a different perspective about the will of God. Maybe there's some course correction that needs to happen in your life, and you realize that there's something more to this than, uh, than what you realized before. So I, I hope for all of this there's something. But the underlying issue here is that the will of God is something that interests everybody, and it has to because this is the central, the defining issue of the success of our lives, whether or not we're living within the will of God. I'd like to start by reading an obituary. Man, 91, dies waiting for the will of God. Tulipo, Mississippi. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby said. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continually about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way, Ruby says. He was a very sensitive man and always wanted to remain in God's will. That was primary for him. Friends say they liked Walter, though he never seemed to capitalize on his talents. Walter had a number of skills which he never got around to using, his longtime Timothy, or his longtime friend Timothy Byrne said. He worked very well with wood and had a storyteller side to him as well. I always told him, take a risk, try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. To his credit, they say Houston, who worked mostly as a handyman, was able to pay off the mortgage on the couple's modest home. Thanks, Hans. Now, the story of Walter Houston thankfully isn't real. Uh, however, there's something to that story that, that maybe does jibe with us. There's something to this story of this man waiting for the confirmation of God and, and kind of basically idling his time away. That can jibe with our stories, too. At the rate many people are going these days, we'll be exploring careers at 30, becoming adults at 40, wandering what we were created for at 40, or 50 years old, rather, going back to college at 60, settling for second best at 70, and still trying to sort it all out by the time we're 80 years old, and then we'll die. If we would have done something faithfully, humbly, 
and with the kind of perseverance and dedication that a person of God does things with and with a consciousness of God's care and direction in our lives, maybe we could have had quite the impact. Maybe Walter could have had quite the impact as well. But if we do nothing because we're always waiting for the perfect something, because we're always waiting for that sleight of hand or that lucky glimpse when we're looking over the shoulder of God to get the look at the, the deck of cards that he has on his hands and finally discern what it is, if we're always waiting for that, a lot of the talent that's been given to us is going to slip past. And a lot of the abilities that God has gifted with us and invested into our lives may end up being unused. Now, more than any time in history, there is a search for significance. Now, more than any time in history, too, there's less answers and there's more confusion about what significance actually is. I think significance has a lot to do with, with how we interact with other people. It's about the impact we have, the legacy that we leave behind us. And deep in our hearts, all of us want to have significant lives. We want to have a legacy that's worthwhile. We want to positively influence other people. But at the same time, we realize in our culture there's a lack of answers for this. And we realize within ourselves we don't really have the answers for what it means to have an adequate life. We want to find that purpose that's bigger than ourselves because we realize that only a purpose that's much larger than we are as individuals is going to lead to a life of significance and a life of fulfillment. Only a larger purpose can inspire us to use the talents and to invest them in ways that really do glorify God and in ways that gratify and use us and satisfy us too. We realize that we're not wise or strong enough to direct ourselves. And because of that, we need the wisdom and the strength of a stronger, a more loving, and a much wiser being to influence our lives and to get involved with us, to actually take control of our lives in a lot of ways. And that's why the will of God really matters. We search for significance. Our culture has no answer for significance. And even in ourselves, we don't have the answer for what it actually means to have a significant life. And we can't even direct it and get ourselves there if we did understand that. The will of God is a significant struggle. So is there satisfaction? Can we find answers to this in the short life that we have? Can we find and fulfill this greater purpose that, that we were actually designed for? And I, I think there is. There's satisfaction. In fact, God calls each of us and everything we do to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested in our lives with a special dynamism, devotion, and direction lived out as a response to God's invitation and also to his summons or to his command to come and to follow him. And the New Testament meaning of the word calling or God's calling to us, his invitation, his summons, and his command is almost a synonym for salvation. In that context, in the New Testament, calling is overwhelmingly God's calling of people to himself and into his kingdom. God's calling is comprehensive. It inspires all of our lives and consumes it. He is so awe-inspiring. God is so awe-inspiring and is summoned so commanding 
that only one response is appropriate. A response as total and as universal as that of the person who called and created us. Abraham Cooper, who I've quoted up on the screen, says, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus does not, Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. And this is what God's calling is like. It's comprehensive and it commands the attention of all of our lives and all of our energies. So to understand what the will of God is for our life, we've got to talk a little bit about some of the distractions or maybe what the will of God isn't. Uh, To respond to the call of God, we've got to hear it first. For me to hear you, it's really pretty easy in a room like this. In a quiet setting, when I call to you, you can hear me. There's very little distraction. But (laughs) if you were to stand up and and move around and, and get a lot of noise happening, we put a television in the corner and Uh, maybe some loud music or something, it it becomes a lot more difficult for me to hear you. That's clear enough. And that's the sort of world that we live in. We live in a world with a lot of distraction and with a lot of competing voices. So for God to actually come through to us and for us to hear God, we've got to grow in discernment. We've got to grow in the ability to see where it is that God's leading in the midst of all those distractions. And I'll say, I think that one of the biggest problems for us as Christians isn't necessarily all of the other distractions that are outside, but sometimes those are those distractions of inadequate ways of looking at the will of God. It's not necessarily the, the pressures that we face from outside. It's the inadequate ways that don't really engage us as people, that don't really involve all of our energies and don't consume our passions. And those are the ways that get us disillusioned. Those are the cheap answers sometimes, I think, that dishearten us and drive us away from actually pursuing and living a lifestyle within the will of God. The first distinction I need to make if we're talking about roads to nowhere is distinguishing the hidden and the revealed will of God or the personal will of God, which is hidden by and large, and the revealed word of God. We spend a lot of energy talking about the hidden will of God and a little bit less many times about the, uh, the, individu- or, sorry, the, the corporate calling of God. So first, the individual will of God. We have to ask, first of all, if we're seeking the will of God, which will of God are we actually seeking? Because this is something that's multifaceted. There's a lot of layers to it. We must distinguish between the individual calling that's fit especially for each individual here. That's the accumulation of your giftings and especially of the calling that God places on you supernaturally, and the corporate calling. Individual calling is part of our life response to God that is unique as our individuals. Corporate calling is that part of our life response that we undertake in common with all other followers of Christ. These things are like the Ten Commandments. That's part of the corporate calling. The Sermon on the Mount is part of the corporate calling and the example of Christ. An individual calling refers to the tasks, gifts, and missions God has laid on an individual through direct, supernatural revelation from God. Corporate calling is the believer's sense that comes just from Christ's calling to follow me without that supernatural revelation. In other words, corporate calling could be seen as our responsibility as believers to exercise 
a high degree of enterprise and creativity about how we live our lives for God. While individual calling is God's response to that enterprise. We have a responsibility to be creative, to engage the world for God. And God's response to that is to suit us with an individual calling that really suits us very well and that uses our gifts and exercises them to the maximum. The servants in uh, Jesus' parable of the talents, in a lot of ways these servants were rewarded for the way that they took the gifts that their master had given them and got on with it while their master was gone. While the master was gone, they did things. They invested. They took risks. And those of them that really took the highest risks in a lot of ways were those that were rewarded by their master because they had invested wisely. And those that just waited and held back were those that had some words of condemnation given to them. In that sense, in the sense of the parable of the talents, there is really no Christian who doesn't have a calling. Every Christian then does have in the corporate sense a calling. And it's out of that corporate sense I'm going to be saying that our individual calling actually comes. We can be led, I think, to a a disastrous slide toward passivity if, if there's an undue emphasis on the individual calling at the expense of the corporate calling. There's a burying of a talent that can happen if there's too much emphasis given to the individual calling and toward the waiting of God or waiting on God to reveal something that he's already spoken very much about, already spoken comprehensively to. So we shouldn't try to make decisions by finding out what God has planned in his sovereign will. And I can't talk very much to you, really, about what God has for you in your personal will because, well, it, it's, it's personal and it's hard for me to discuss. But we can discuss and we can come to some consensus on what it is that God has for us in the common or the corporate will that we have with everybody. As we line up our energies to do God's corporate will, the individual calling emerges. We should concern ourselves then with the revealed corporate will of God. And it is through obedience to that general calling that the specific calling that matches our gifts and that matches who we are as people actually begins to emerge. So we're discerning the general will of God and the specific will of God here for us as people. Otherwise, I'll say we should not distinguish or seek for God's will based solely on selfish motives, superficial methods, feelings, or circumstances. Selfish motives. I I don't have to spend a lot of time there. That's that's clear enough. Uh, Superficial methods, though, and feelings and circumstances, the problems with those things isn't that there's something necessarily wrong with them. It's just that they're incomplete by themselves. And a life based on them is going to become lopsided. It's, it's going to become paralyzed after a while. So again, it's not like there's something intrinsically wrong with, with using superficial methods or, or circumstances to discern what God's will is for somebody's life. But as a person begins to progress, after a while, they just become inadequate. Superficial methods. Um, there's, a, there's a man who, who needed to hear from God about a certain matter, and this was an important one, so he got very diligent about how he was going to, to seek God's will. Uh, knowing that there's very much about what God wants in the Bible, he 
opened his Bible and blindly placed his finger on a page. He turned to Matthew 27. Then he went away and hanged himself. He wasn't very satisfied with the answer, so he decided he was, he was going to try this again. He flips his Bible open, puts his finger on Luke 10. Go and do likewise. Still kind of uncertain what God was actually trying to tell him, but beginning to get a little bit frightened, he turns to John 2, 5. Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> so flipping coins or other superficial methods of, of trying to find out what God wants for us have a certain appeal because they do avoid the responsibility for us of gaining discernment and of making really difficult choices and getting involved in them. God can work, I think, with superficial methods, and he does. But often in the context, the greater context of a person who has a lifestyle that's already devoted to God. Feelings. Uh, decisions based on feelings are often unwise because our feelings, they can mislead us. You can guide your life by your feelings, but that's not a life that's really chosen. A life that's guided by feelings isn't one that's guided by moral choice. Moral choice is something in which you're actually active, you're engaged with decisions, but feelings tend to push us. They tend to just slide us along from choice to choice. And God's will, I think, is for us to become active in the decision-making process. God wishes for us to line our feelings up with this, to temper our feelings with wisdom, and to get them into an equal yoke with wisdom and with discernment. And that becomes something like intuition. And that's a powerful tool. I'm not trying to minimize that. Intuition is an incredible asset that we have as humans. And God wants us to develop intuition. What I'm addressing here is the sort of feeling that changes rapidly before or after you've had your morning coffee or depending how much sleep you've had the night before. Those sorts of feelings are, are really pretty shifty and unstable ways to sense where God is leading us. You can feel great about something and it can be a very, very poor choice to have. You can have good feelings and be happy about lifestyle choices that are actually undermining your relationship with God and taking you away from the people who are going to help you and help teach you how to grow. Or you can feel like a failure, like Job did, and really be a spiritual hero and a giant who's going to be looked at for years. So feelings tend not to indicate for us very well what it is that we're doing and, and, and whether with discernment we're actually developing into the will of God or are going away from it. And last, circumstances. Events and circumstances, these are really important things in our decision-making, and we can't ignore them. You make some foolish choices if uh, you go through life ignoring circumstances, and you're going to get yourself into a lot of hurt. But circumstances are not road signs on the will of God, put there by God to reveal his will to us, or to tell us which way to go. I like the quote by uh, Hayden Robinson better. He says that circumstances are simply the factors that bring us to a point of decision. They're often outline the decision that is to be made. But circumstances in themselves are not necessarily signs of God's guidance. The things we see in circumstances often say more about us than they do about what is really happening. 
He's saying that our view of circumstances is often skewed and off-centered. And because of that, circumstances aren't something that can really reliably gauge where it is we're heading and where God is taking us. Another problem with circumstances is that they're sometimes misleading. Sometimes open doors are exactly the wrong things to do. You think about Saul and David as David was fleeing from Saul for his life. And finally, in a cave, David has the perfect opportunity. The doors are wide open for him. He encounters Saul sleeping. And his opportunity was there to finally end this and to take his rule as God had anointed him as king. He decides not to, and he remains within the will of God in that decision because of something greater that guided him. The circumstance there was something that was misleading, and David was able to discern that. The bottom line in these roads to nowhere is this. Divination, trying to pry the mind of God, trying to, to see over the shoulder of God and see what his hand of cards is like, does not require transformation. Divination does not require transformation. God's aim for us in life and God's will at the center of it is a new mind. God's will for us is a new heart. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of feeling about the world, a new way of intuitively looking at the world to discern where it is that he wants us to go so he can just lead us with his eye, just with a glance, so that we're yoked together with God. His aim is for us to be transformed, sanctified, freed by the truth of the revealed word. He's not interested in celestial hide-and-seek with us. God has always been perfectly clear when he needs to be. In wisdom, I think God often does withhold information from us. And he does that because of his wisdom, not because he's trying to be cruel to us. The, the, the problem with too much revealed information is that it doesn't require us to change. It doesn't require us to transform and become like Christ. So in God's wisdom, he's chosen to withhold a lot of information for us. But that's because in his wisdom, he wants us to change. He wants us to change for him. Those are the roads to nowhere. Now, what I want to do is, is spend the rest of this time just talking about this person, who it is that can actually discern at a glance and who can intuitively think about what it is that God wants and how is it that God can change us and transform us so that intuitively, instinctively, and on the basis of our feelings, we can even understand where it is that God wants us to be so that we can walk into a new situation and without a lot of information, discern where it is that God wants us to move and how it is that God wants us to navigate that situation. The first is the audience of one. Marlene Dietrich was an actress in the, uh, the 1920s and 30s. She issued recordings of nothing but applause on vinyl on the old LP records, two sides of nothing but applause. And she released these. She even invited a few times some of her friends to come over, and after a, a, a lavish supper, they would sit there, and she would insist that they sit down and listen to both sides of applause. And while they were listening, she would just solemnly recite to her friends where it was, at which concert it was, that each of these uh, 
ovations happened, and she knew them all by heart. Uh, she would say, that, that, that was Paris. And then the next track would come on of applause. That was Rome. Next one. That was New York. So it's easy. <laughs> we all realize, I think we, we, we have an audience, and whether we realize it or not, we, we pay attention to the applause of some audience or another. It's easy to buck a crowd. It's not too hard to have a different drummer than everybody else. But it's truly difficult or perhaps impossible to march to your own drumbeat. All of us go through life with attention to some audience or another. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience is it that we're living for and what applause are we seeking to have? We live for the applause of somebody, and we have to distinguish who it is and what applause it is that we're actually seeking. We've moved from an inner-directed world, in a lot of ways, to an outer-directed world. The modern society we have is one where people look outside for cues, rather than look inside for cues about where it is that they should live and what it, how it is they should go about living their lives. And our roving, roving radar today has a lot of opportunities to see those cues around us. There's a lot of funny stories out there about people using technology, about a flatbed truck driver who was uh, texting on one phone while he was calling somebody on the other phone. He sideswiped a car, took the side off of a house, ran over a tree, and ended up in a swimming pool. Other stories like um, people who've walked into light pools or fallen down manholes that were open, and one man who even ran into a bear while he was texting. <laughs> so there's distraction that comes with technology, and that's because of some of the interconnectedness. But one of the other problems, and maybe even the more deadly problem than, than some of these physical things, is a kind of mental and emotional distraction and the different audiences that are brought into our lives constantly through technology. There's a lot of advantages to technology, but one of the things we have to be aware of is how this is creating for us constantly an audience and how we're constantly looking for the cues of different audiences and we're given access to them consistently. So we have to be honest with ourselves. What is the audience that we're looking for? Whose applause are we actually seeking? And we have to actually take steps, I think, to prevent some of those other audiences to gain the priority in our lives. To follow the call of God and to live before the audience of one is to shift awareness of our audiences to the point that only the one and the highest audience that truly matters, that audience and the applause of God, is the one that has center stage in our lives. It's to live for one concern, the pleasure of God and his recognition only. Some of the greatest works and some of the greatest saints that Christians have ever done, maybe you've noticed this, they didn't need a lot of recognition. The people who did those things didn't need to be recognized for the work that they've done. And the reason for that is because they were doing these things, not before many audiences, but before one audience. And when they had that one audience discerned, and when they knew that they'd fulfilled the pleasure of God, that was enough. Those who care for the applause of the audience of one can afford to be careless of lesser audiences. Charles Gordon summarizes as well. The more one sees of life, the more one feels, in order to keep from shipwreck, the necessity of steering by the polar star. 
in a word, leave to God alone and never pay attention to the favor or smiles of men. If he smiles on you, neither the smile nor frown of man can affect you. Another facet of God's will, desiring the will of God. The very word religion can mean binding or yoking or relating, and that's why I have a a yoke up here. Physically, this yoking is our participation in the life and in the actions of God as we see them through Christ. In our spirits, it is our uniting of our wills, the actual transformation of the things we want into those of Christ. Yoking together with God means learning what it is that God desires in the world, learning what it is that God wants when he looks at the world and when he looks at certain situations and to pull in the same direction as God does in those things. When we love God, we identify with him. We become like what we love. I've noticed sometimes with a little bit of alarm that as couples age, they become more and more like each other. So they could almost read each other's mind in really uncanny ways. I've been married for four and a half years and we are already start to complete each other's sentences from time to time. <laughs> and it's a little bit alarming, but what's happening there, there's an intertwining of our lives. There's a life-on-life contact, and there's love, and there's mutual respect. And because of that, there's a likeness that's developing between our lives, and we understand each other. And we can just impossibly, in, intuitively understand what's happening in each other's minds, what's happening in the life of the other person. The more common interests that we share... Well, maybe back up there. And as, as we learn to love each other, as we learn to respect each other more and more, we even begin to share common interests more and more. I've developed tastes. I've developed habits and little rituals and things that I surround myself through my marriage that otherwise I wouldn't have developed. And it's because of that common love that we have for each other that those things develop. Union with God, then, is how Jesus defined heaven in his high priestly prayer in John seventeen thirteen, that they may know thee and Christ whom thou hast sent. The closer we get to the knowledge and to the union with God, the closer we get to heaven and the clearer the discernment of the will of God becomes. So a central part of the will of God is the transformation of our desires. It's a transformation of the things we want into the image of what Christ wanted in the world. Those two extremes regarding desires that I have to address because desires really are volatile things. They're dangerous. Desires are important, and here's one extreme. Desires are important or even detrimental or harmful to our choices. The other extreme is to give desire more authority than wisdom or than revelation as we find it in the Bible. We've got to acknowledge that our desires are something that have been really, really badly damaged by the fall. They've been devastated. And because of that, we have to approach our desires with a healthy sense of skepticism. But at the same time, we can't just run from them. We have to acknowledge that our desires are one of the places where God is really working in our lives as well, to change them, to shape them, to tear them down and rebuild them and bring them into alignment with what Christ would have them to be. So desiring the will of God, learning what it is he wants in the world, is an acquired skill through which one can apply the truth of God in a lot of different situations. And this is the wonderful thing, I think, about desiring what it is the will of God actually is in our life. 
It isn't something that's just stuck to specific circumstances. As we learn to use the discernment of God and to use the desire of God in the world, it's something that applies all across our lives and has a tremendous amount of flexibility. There's also some ambiguity that comes along with this. I talk about desiring the will of God. Well, you can't get a hold of that. That's pretty abstract. So do I like that ambiguity? Well, no, there's, there's slipperiness here. It's, it's difficult. It's harder to get a hold of than just specific information. I'm convinced that like, God just doesn't want us to do something in our lives. He doesn't just want us to find a specific task and accomplish that. He's not even just calling us to one specific thing to do. He's not calling us just to outer Mongolia or to motherhood or to Nigeria or to business. Those are secondary callings. And secondary callings only matter because the primary calling or the first calling toward the love of God matters most. And it's out of those things that the secondary callings emerge. Live free or die. Tommy Hilfiger released a number of years ago a cologne called Freedom. And as some of the, the promotional material they released with this caught my eye. The cologne's tagline was, go where you want to go. Do what you want to do. Live how you want to live. That's what freedom is all about. Freedom. Pop American culture often defines freedom in terms like that as the lack of restraint, the flexibility we have to make choices, and the kinds of opportunities we have in our lives and the expansion of those opportunities and continuing throughout our lives to just grow and grow and amass lots of opportunities in our lives. And there is a certain kind of freedom that comes with that. But what if the freedom that we really need, what if a more basic kind of freedom that's actually going to give us liberty in life is something that sometimes comes in conflict with that? What if the freedom that is given to us by cologne advertisements keeps us from experiencing the freedom that will actually give us life in the long run? Freedom really does appear to be as much of an enemy as it is a friend. Think a bit about what absolute freedom actually means, the kind of freedom that's described in this commercial. To be bound to nothing, to have our allegiance given to nothing, is to be absolutely free. But absolute freedom like that is also absolute insecurity. To be bound to nothing also means you're loosed from everybody and you're without everybody. To be bound to nothing, no one, is to be absolutely alone and faced with endless expanses of choice. There is opportunity there, but it's not the kind of opportunity that's actually going to get you moving in a direction, at least not to the person who realizes that they don't have it all together themselves. Artists and athletes, I think, have it right. Artists and athletes have thought about freedom differently than that. They give up their freedom to do whatever they want. They give up the freedom to have just endless opportunities spread out in front of them, subject themselves to strict disciplines, and in the, gain, in the end gain the freedom to actually perform to much higher levels than anybody else could have. They sacrifice and compromise choices to choose that one choice that actually matters and to focus on that. And they give up the lesser choices that allow that to happen. Freedom for them 
is to be bound to something that's larger than they are themselves. Freedom for them is to identify that one thing that really matters and to give up the lesser things, to sacrifice those other choices, to sacrifice the opportunities, to sacrifice the relationships that hinder that thing from happening. Freedom is the mastery of ourselves. It's the mastery of lesser desires, giving them up. It's the mastery and the surrender of our out-of-control desires and appetites for the sake of the ones that matter most. That's true of artists. That's true of athletes. That's true of Christians as well who live a lifestyle of the will of God. The people who really contribute to the work of God are the ones who are willing to surrender the lesser things for the truer freedom that comes with the work of Christ. As Paul says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. Paul is a man who understood the sacrifice of freedom that came and the true, in the end, the true freedom that came from living a life that was lined up with something much larger than he was as a man. To let God's active will into our lives is not to become more passive, but to become more active. God's will turns our wills on, not off. God's desires root and uproot and form and reform and refurbish our desires to be more alive and to be more vibrant than they were before as he restrains them. And God's mind turns our minds on, not off. His interest is to bring you fully alive as you despise sin, as you turn to him in humility in the recognition that to really fulfill the purpose of life, to find something that really has meaning and significance, <laughs> you don't have that in yourself. As you turn to him in that humility and allow him to work his image into you, God is seeking not to reveal the perfect set of circumstances. He's not seeking to declassify just information to you. But he's seeking to invest in the development of who you are, in the development of your character. I'm one behind. And to invest in your heart and in your mind. It's in that that we experience the freedom from sin and lesser things which distract from the will of God or from the call of God on our lives. We can then respond intuitively to his call, to God's message, and to take action in the world. God is seeking not to feed you just for one day, but to teach you to fish. I have uh, in your handouts as well a couple of other resources. I like the way that John Piper talks about desiring the will of God and and. Working the will of God as something, looking at the will of God as something that changes us and transforms us. So I included that in there. Also, I included some, some scriptural references about the will of God. It's, it's surprising in a lot of ways that uh, there's very little said in scripture many times about specific ways or methodologies that should, we should go about seeking the will of God. And there's a lot more general information in there about how it is that we can interact with the world in everyday ways and how those things actually transform us and change us. It's been a joy to have you here, and uh, I wish you 
a life of significance. I wish you a life that lines up for the audience of one and a life that has value in the end as you discipline and focus yourself toward what God has for you. Thank you. God bless. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders Educational Programs. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.